Angie's List is now Angie, your home for everything home. Angie still has the same top pros and reviews you've counted on for more than 20 years. Only now, you'll also get access to all the tools you need to make your home a happy place. Inside, outside, big or small, Angie helps you find the right solution for whatever you need done all from your phone. It's simple to find upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. You can even search pricing guides to see what others paid for similar jobs and easily compare quotes from top local pros to make sure you're getting a fair price. From lawn care to repairing the AC to the project of your dreams, Angie has your home projects handled from start to finish. Plus, when you book and pay through Angie, they'll cover your project up to the full purchase price plus limited damage protection with their happiness guarantee. Make your home an Angie home. Check out Angie.com today. And for more on the happiness guarantee, go to Angie.com forward slash happiness hyphen guarantee dot htm. You promise your child they can be anything they choose. They promise to follow their dreams. Our promise is to help you save for college today and every day worry-free. YouPromise.com lets you save extra money for college by doing the everyday things you already do. Link any college savings plan with a free YouPromise account and watch your child's dreams become their future. Sign up today at YouPromise.com for a $30 welcome bonus. Start now at YouPromise.com. Hey there, guys. Wanted to tell you about something new. I've launched a Patreon account, patreon.com slash Andrew Brand. People have asked about getting more content, more insight, more information from me, and now that's available through various tiers. If you're able to join on patreon.com, you can get shout-outs from me. You can get the Business of Sports podcast transcripts. You can get Ask Andrew questions, weekly newsletters, all kinds of ways to interact with me, including a monthly conversation about whatever you want to talk about, jobs in the sports industry, breaking into sports. It's all available now on patreon.com. Andrew Brandt, if you're able, please join, select your tier and be able to have further content and interaction with me. Patreon.com slash Andrew Brandt. I hope you join. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. That music is from my son, Sam Brandt. Special edition of the business of sports, we have a guest on a sport that I don't talk about much, but this person kind of transcends sports in many ways. It's Paul Rabel, the founder of the Premier Lacrosse League that started two years ago today, October 22nd, 2018, and this is PLL Day, so releasing this on Thursday, October 22nd. Uh, Paul is much more than an athlete. His background is extensive. For someone 35 years old, he's done a lot. He is one of the best lacrosse players in the world and has been for a long time. He was the first overall pick of the M Major Lacrosse League in 2008. He was the first overall pick of the National Lacrosse League in 2008. Played for both of those leagues and he is the founder, along with his brother Mike, of the PLL with investors like the Churning Group, the Rain Group, and they formed a league two years ago and made it happen. And here they are after their second season, played through a pandemic. He talks about that. Paul has been named the best athlete in a web series by Synopsis Sports Media. He's the top 40 most entrepreneurial athletes. He's been named the most tech-savvy athlete by Sport Techie. He's among 2018 Bluebird 50 honorees. He has put together an impressive resume in the business of sports beyond being a player in sports. He has created a league. He is much more 
than talent, even though that's part of his role again. So on PLL Day, without further ado, my friend and someone I think you'll very much enjoy listening to, Paul Rabel. Paul, you're kind of like me. I get this all the time, sort of how people ask when I do radio or stuff, how do we identify you? You know, just like, you know, a lot of titles. You did that. You did this. Your Packers. Your media. Your your teacher. Your professor. And I'm like, listen, whatever you want, uh, whatever your needs. And I look at you, entrepreneur, one of the best lacrosse players ever, uh, starting leagues, venture capital. I mean, if people ask you that question, you know, sort of put try to put you in that box, try to put that label on you. How do you identify yourself? But uh, first of all, thanks. Um, that, that's that's a gracious thing to say. Um, I've thought about that because it, there's um, there's a there's a lot that we both do. But if if you come from the world of marketing, uh, market marketing is a, a lot of times about synthesis, and um, you know you're going to have to leave some things out that you know, frankly, maybe don't carry uh, anyway. Uh, so you're right. We do some early stage venture investing, um, and uh, and I and I co-founded a, a charity called uh, the Rabel Foundation that helps with uh, children with learning differences, which I, I grew up with. I play professional lacrosse and have for 15 years, and I co-founded the Premier Lacrosse League. Um, but you know, it's it's it's. I think for me, uh, how I uh, think about it is what is most current and. I spend close to 100% of my time now building the PLL, especially in our off season here, um, and uh, still still play. So I, I typically identify as a professional lacrosse player and co-founder of, of the PLL. Yeah, I like that. I really, really like that attitude. And it's like when I um, – obviously, you see my Packers helmet back there, but when people want to identify me as – former Packers this, and I'm like, no, you know, I'm just, we don't need to talk about the former, but having said that, I do want to go back with you because I know you're from, we're from similar areas. I'm from suburban DC. You're from same area. Uh, And uh, one, one thing people probably don't know about you is you went to DeMatha high, which is known for obviously great athletes, primarily basketball, but football like Brian Westbrook, who's a good friend of both of ours uh, and Villanova. But uh, talk about the background growing up and sort of how you led, you know, you're a big strapping athlete. I think one people might, one thing people might be interested in is why lacrosse. Yeah. Like all the sports that kids play. Why lacrosse? Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm turning 35 at the end of the year and I'm up for another hearing assessment. And uh, <laughs> my mom just forwarded me uh, the hearing assessment from 10 years ago. Uh, so I, I actually was born 85% deaf in my left ear, and right. it was gradually getting worse and leveled off my sophomore year in high school. Uh, I kind of talk out of the side of my mouth from time to time. It's toward the side that I hear uh, a far smaller frequency out of. And um, and that was the reason why I never played football. Um, it doesn't mean that I, 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 I could not have actually played if I wanted to forego the recommendation or my, the, the recommendation of my parents, at least, that I could have lost all of the hearing in my left ear and potentially run the risk of, of health in, in my right ear. Um, but that, that's the, the only sport I didn't play. I, I played pretty much every sport growing up. And uh, for me, why lacrosse 
it, it, when it was introduced to me in middle school, it felt like the amalgamation of all of the other sports that I really love, the endurance of soccer, the pick and roll and agility of basketball, hand-eye coordination of, of hockey and, and baseball, and then the contact of, of football. Um, and then when I decided to really zero in on it was actually when I transferred and why I transferred over to DeMatha. So I was a three-sport athlete my freshman year at a public school called Watkins Mill. And it's where my brother went all four years and, and then graduated, was the captain of the football team, ended up playing football at Dartmouth. Um, I love the school, but we didn't actually have a, a varsity coach at the time um, because of a, a couple of circumstances that you know, the players couldn't control. And, and our practices during the spring were largely led by our captains at the time. Hmm. And we barely had enough players to fill the varsity team. So I was playing varsity. And as a freshman, you wear a letter jacket at a public school with 2,500 kids. Uh, people, people look at you differently. So there was, uh, e- you know, there was ego and impressionism taking place. And I, I, I felt, you know, insecure just as any other freshman in high school, but I ended up having a good season and went to my parents and said, Hey, I, I actually really love this sport now. And I think I could potentially play in college. Little did I know I had a lot of growing to do, but, uh, we started looking at other schools and, and the coach at DeMatha, um, called my folks and, you know, they were the, the cheapest private school in the state of Maryland and had a great pedigree for developing student athletes, as you said. And before I knew it, I, I had transferred over there and I was traveling uh, uh, about 45 minutes to an hour each way to go mm-hmm. to school. And I also quickly realized that I went from top of the depth chart to the bottom at the math as we had, I think, 13 seniors at the time that were going to play division one lacrosse. Uh, but that was also a fast ramp up period for me to kind of glean skill from them. And and that was the story of of, uh, of, of how I kind of got to DeMatha and then how I eventually accelerated as an athlete because they've got great coaches. Yeah. And then you move not far to Johns Hopkins, which obviously had an established program in addition to being a great school. Was that an easy transition, kind of seamless being from the area? It was interesting. I, I, I wanted to go to North Carolina uh, my dad had gone there and, and we had about 20 or so Rabel uh, family members who had been through Chapel Hill uh, and they had a good lacrosse program, but uh, it talks about recruiting. And uh, the reason why I went to Hopkins and Dave Petromala, who is no longer the coach at Hopkins, um, he was phenomenal. And like he just, his approach was to, was to not recruit. It was really just to get to, to know you and things that we learn on, on the executive side of running the PLL when you communicate with brands is like, what's important to you, to the companies that you're pitching, right? And doing less talking and more listening. And he was genuinely invested authentically into that process. And it, it's gotta be time consuming as I kind of peel back now in my thirties, thinking about having, you know, a hundred conversations with 16 year olds. Um, but he was phenomenal at it and, and obviously had the history of Hopkins to, to back him. And what went from probably number five on my list quickly became number one. And I decided to stay local. It's interesting, you know, at this point in your, in your recruiting, you talked about your coach and how was it back then? And I know we're not talking about ancient history. You're only 35, <laughs> which yeah. maybe to me, but um, you and I have both retweeted this article from the Atlantic yeah. last week. And it talks about this massive, uh, effort by families to get recruited in, in different sports, but there's a lot of lacrosse talk in that and the showcases and all of that. I mean, is that something relatively new? Were you part of that and, and the constant effort to be seen and get that scholarship? 
Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of things that I want to address. The Atlantic article was awesome. Yeah. Um, and they, and lacrosse was definitely in the conversation. I believe the the title had, a, had to do with more niche sports. Right. Um, and so you're non legacy. Yeah. So it, it actually starts and this is a good, the good segue. It starts with recruiting. So, uh, uh, you know, non-legacy leagues called the niche sports, they are, um, they are scholarshiped uh, less than the revenue sports because consider niche sports what the NCAA considers non-revenue. So what, take a sport like lacrosse, they get 12 and a half scholarships per team and you know, every team averages around 44 players. So they have the ability to divvy up those scholarships. Mm-hmm. If you're a revenue sport at the NCAA, you actually don't even get a chance to divvy it up. So you know, uh, college basketball and college football coaches, if they're going to scholarship you, it's full ride. Right. Um, so those are the two differences. So what happens is over the last, call it decade and a half, sport has taken um, on a new light to parents as a means to one, get their, their kids into school. And this is what the Atlantic offered. And then two, the more transparency around college sports and as, as youth sports have privatized and then access to coaches and the recruiting landscape has changed, it's become hyper competitive. Um, so I, growing up uh, 20 years ago in the youth system, uh, it was still rec. So I played rec ball, um, played a little bit of AAU and a little bit of club soccer. So they were actually before the niche sports began to become privatized. And, uh, and I was recruited for my play in high school. Now we've seen it at soccer, certainly, and we've seen it for a long time in basketball, but lacrosse and other sports have, have taken on that privatized um, mentality where rec sports have become extinct. It's not cool for kids to play rec sports. That is the biggest threat to participation at the sport level. And that's pulled from an, a lot of research asking kids that now uh, trail off from sport participation at the age of 11 and 12. Um, and so it, on average, will cost a uh, private youth program to uh, a, a, a parent to finance their, their daughter or son $10,000 for the year. So now you're blocking off um, participation based on affordability. Um, and then there's also these like false promises uh, between the excitement of, of um, you know, dispensing a bunch of cool gear and playing for the uh, club program that is nationally ranked to coaches um, of these club programs, promising parents that they can get them in front of college coaches, potentially get them recruited. I think that regulation needs to continue to happen at the NCAA level, which a step was taken a couple of years ago uh, to mandate that you cannot recruit uh, or early recruit by way of an offer anyone before their junior year. That was huge when the NCAA pushed that through because kids were getting scholarship offers in in eighth grade. Hmm. Um, So that has allowed a bottom-up growth cycle to kind of become organic again. Um, And then the other is I I think that the bubble needs to burst and will burst at some some point with with privatized sport, um, especially with the hard goods thing. I'll I'll share one more thing, Andrew, that, that I found interesting as I was doing some research recently. All right, so if you bucket call it lacrosse, hockey, and golf as hard good sports. And they're expensive. And, and that's when you block off, I think, uh, a portion of, of socioeconomic uh, divide in our country, uh, which if you look at the poverty line, it's more than 50% of our country, um, much less you know, can afford uh, day-to-day lifestyle of living of, of the other half of the country, but certainly uh, private use sports. So if, if it's expensive to play just on getting gear alone, you're not even going to consider the, the next barrier, which is getting and playing for your club team. But why not football? So I mean, football is an expensive sport. You have helmets, you have shoulder pads. So football has actually gone the path 
a number of decades ago of subsidizing locally through through taxpayer dollars as well as uh, national grants and um, and football got it right early and um, you know what we're learning now and we're seeing a pullback on taxpayer dollars at least to football at the rec levels because what we've learned from a health and safety standpoint of concussion and 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 kind of the science that, is, that has come out behind that and the danger of it um, but you know I, I think a way to approach sports like hockey and lacrosse team sports that are expensive to play is you know going the lobbying route and trying to figure out how to revive both rec sports but also get some subsidies um to to help fund it because rec sports are low margin so there's not going to be a private uh you know uh funding that takes place it's got to be public and i think you're starting to answer this but i was going to ask what what is the answer to all these these wealthy parents hiring private coaches. We, we read in that article about building courts for their kids and paying uh, coaches full time, full time. Yeah. Um, and uh, you talked about the hyper competitive aspect of it. So, is what you're talking about an answer? I mean, what is the answer to, especially the Ivies? Because basically, the Ivies, what is it called? Preferred students. They can't give scholarships, but it's. Yeah, that getting them into that vaunted status. Yeah, well, I think I think we've got to realize that in any, in any industry, um, the way that our system is is built here in the U.S. is yeah. that um, you know the, the rich get richer, and there's always going to be more opportunity for the wealthy to kind of hack their way into uh, opportunities that have been identified, and we can call them loopholes, or we can just call them preferred admission. Um, and you know, I, I, I think that universities have to look inward, um, and decide how important in some cases athletics are to them and, and like preferred route. Um, and if you talk about Ivies, Ivies don't give scholarships. So they, uh, they definitely go a, a route of saying, okay, this person can play on my team, um, uh, girl or boy, and, uh, we're going to try to create space for them through admission. Right. Um, so there, there's a, there's a, a hacking process that, parents that have the means will uh, use those means to hire a, a really great coach and, and help ramp up the skill level of their kid. But I, I think the, the solve has got to start at the rec level. Rec sports have gone away largely. Yeah. Um, so I, I would like that to be done through a combination of public and private funding. Um, and then I think there needs to, as I said before, there needs to be more NCAA regulation around recruiting. So you go from playing, obviously, a storied career at Johns Hopkins to playing pro for quite a while in two leagues. Um, and again, we're used to talking about what you've already talked about, big money sports like football, basketball, baseball. You made a living <laughs> in these sports. Uh, not many people do. And, uh, you know, we, you and I have talked about, I know, uh, what's his name? Kevin, um, Kevin, I forget, I'm blanking on his last name, but one of the great uh, lacrosse players who teaches at my son's school, but he's also, yeah. he's also got two other jobs. Um, yeah. how'd you make it work? Well, I, uh, I got fake, fake it till you make it type of deal. I, I suppose. Um, I, uh, I, I first got a job in commercial real estate after I graduated from Johns Hopkins, I was drafted number one in the outdoor league at the time, which is major league lacrosse and number two in the indoor league, which is the national lacrosse league. Right. And um, this was right before the market bottomed out, believe it or not. So I was in real estate in 2008. And uh, my bosses at the time knew me and knew lacrosse and basically allowed me to take off work on Thursday and Friday so I could play on weekends 
Um, and that was a sustainable one uh, for me as, as my athletic goals were to be the best in both leagues and be the best, one of the best to ever play. Um, and that requires a lot of practice. So I was luckily able to, I will use the word subsidize that dream um, through sponsorship dollars. And that came to me because when I graduated in 2008, um, Facebook at the time had just launched their fan pages, which meant they opened it up uh, beyond just friend groups. And you can now uh, build an audience of greater than 5,000 friends. Um, so Facebook pages launched and that's when I built a, uh, a page for myself and saw an audience go from, you know, two, 3000 friends to then 50,000 fans. And that triggered a thought, wow, well, there's new media at our disposal that people didn't know what the hell it was or how it was going to be used for the future. This was just 12 years ago and see where social has now become, which is kind of the, the new media, the primal primary media. Um, is that uh, you know I was able to access an audience that was important to brands. So I, uh, Under Armour was one of the first to see it. So they signed me to an endorsement deal, and then Red Bull saw it secondarily as this athlete who was active on social. And at the time, very few athletes were even on social media. And I was on early on Twitter and early on Instagram, and um, they cut me a check for twenty thousand twenty thousand dollars, and um, and and that like enabled me to go into my boss's office and, and tell them that I was going to uh, stop working, which they were probably relieved. They they felt like they were financing this junior analyst during a, a, a recession, um, and uh, and then that also gave me the ability to kind of move out of the basement of my parents' home and and into uh, a, a, an apartment in Baltimore that I shared with two other roommates. And I was practicing every day. I was learning about brand marketing. I was active on social and. And I became better as a player because of all the practice I was putting in. So I was one of the first, call it uh, lacrosse professionals to be full time. Yeah, I want to drill down a little bit on that. So by the way, that I blanked on that name. It's Kevin Crowley. <laughs> okay, Kevin Crowley. Yeah. Yeah. Of Who's course, Canadian yeah. player. Yeah. He's Canadian. And he teaches at my son's school and he does real estate. And, and I'm like, yeah. you know, you, this is like playing lacrosse, like you're being coached by Peyton Manning. I mean, it's like one of the best yeah. ever is just at this school working part time. Um, but I think what you, what you just described with very modest terms is really jumping in the social part of it, which so many athletes have to kind of be drag kicking and screaming. And part of it is being afraid of being trolled or the criticism you're going to get. But I, I've always admired you, Paul, as someone that, and you and I talked about this years ago, someone that really embraced new media instead of being scared by it, instead of being like, oh, you know. I'm too old. It's all kids, whatever it is. Uh, you jumped in head first and it's really paid off for you. Yeah, it, 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 I appreciate that. I wish I could credit predictability, but I, I think I, I have to be honest and, and credit necessity. Um, you know, if, if I was playing in the NFL, yeah. in the NBA or Major League Baseball, I, I probably wouldn't have had the same type of dedication and commitment to that form because I would have had the luxury of of being, um, you know, kind of marketed across traditional media. Um, so for me, it was like, okay, necessity. And then I do believe kind of innately, I have a, a mind for marketing and content. And if I weren't in sports, I, I might be in film or, or I'd be maybe with a brand agency, um, liking my, uh, my ability to storytell. And so the, the, the two, I think, matched well. And that's why uh, social has been uh, such a prominent uh, part of of my career, and whether it's you know with the PLL now or, or other businesses that I've been a part of, or advisor invested in. The the next level 
bit of commitment, this is what we impart on our employees and other colleagues that we work with, is that you've got to be curious. And there's so much white meat out there, even still left on social um, and whatever industry you're in to where, I, okay, I started picking up on on the nuance of having to, having to be good on, on social media, but then I reached out to the head of sports at Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and YouTube, and I started building a relationship and understanding some of the new tools that they were rolling out. And I found myself on you know pilot testing programs. And um, as a result, you start figuring out more kind of nuance around the algorithms of these platforms and ways to build your audience further and do so organically versus I think cheap ways, which a lot of people started buying followers and so on. So, and there was just this intellectual curiosity around it that um, for me, I think uh, in, the, in the long tail of what we've been able to do was was probably most advantageous. Yeah, I mean, remember you doing the YouTube videos and the cooking shows and- uh, Well, let's not talk too much about those. It's, they're hard to watch for me now. <laughs> hey, everyone's got their past. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move to your entrepreneurial spirit as you, uh, as you take off last year and begin this absolutely new league. Um, did it, I, I'm assuming it formed as you went through being a player in these other leagues and you thought about how can we make this work in a more, like you said, marketing business oriented approach, Yeah, make this a real thing. So I guess soup to nuts, where did the PLL come from and, and how did it come to fruition? Yeah. So I, I got to say that I'm, I'm obviously partial towards this sport, but while I was playing professionally for the first 10 years and I was doing both outdoor and indoor, um, I, I kind of view the game organically as an outdoor sport. It's, it was uh, created by the Haudenosaunee people. So it's an indigenous game that, that, that always started out on the field. And then if you look at, you know, in, in kind of Silicon Valley terms, product market fit, the game is now international, played and sanctioned in 70 countries. And we see it at the NCAA level. And we talked about privatized youth sports and youth lacrosse, both rec and club. Uh, that's played on grass and that's played 10 on 10. I love the indoor game, played the indoor game, but my mind has always been kind of racing around how does pro lacrosse exist in an outdoor environment? I learned a lot about arena sports and the advantages of arena sports. But for me, I was always trying to figure out in the, those first 10 years of playing in the MLL. And if you go back and look at my tweets and such, I, I was collaborating. I was a part of uh, what was called a player's council. I was leading that at the MLL and trying to figure out how to make it work because I just believed in not only the game, but my colleagues and you know competitors on the field and, and what we were seeing right in front of us with the UFC that had essentially commercialized and professionalized MMA that had existed for hundreds of years, like lacrosse has existed for almost a thousand. Um, new tech, new media, original programming, telling the stories of the athletes, all that stuff was like very clear to me. Um, and, uh, and, we, and we weren't doing it at the at the former league um so the first path andrew was a combination of my co-founder and he's the ceo of pll is my, my older brother mike he was in his entrepreneurial career and actually leaving his latest venture which was running revenue at funding circle which came from a uh you know a, a a business that we had started that focused on small business lending we were acquired by funding circle and he was running that business so he was looking for his new project and he was trying to get me to go out to Silicon Valley and, and go on that project with him um, and potentially retire from lacrosse. And I started talking to him about uh, a bigger idea around either acquiring MLL 
were starting something from scratch. And we went probably for the first nine months down the path of acquiring MLL. We knew it was a low likelihood um, uh, uh, project, but uh, we were concurrently building what it would look like from scratch. And that was the PLL. And our business principles were, I think, very different around not only how we create the company as a single entity, but this touring model, um, how we view media and a combination of a really strong linear broadcast deal, which we were able to get with NBC, uh, matched with a social digital presence that's uploaded daily and um, kind of streamlined directly through the voices of our players and their social platforms. And we view sports as as entertainment and uh, largely having to do with storytelling. And the easiest thing that we knew would take care of itself is the product on field. So let's go get the best players and see if they want to buy into our vision. Uh, which included a, a much greater comp as well as stock options um, as kind of I, I saw at a, at a macro level. Um, we all know athletes are the most powerful assets in sports and athletes have become more aware of the owners taking kind of the long-term shareholder value. So if we can start from scratch and build a league in 2019, what does that look like? Well, probably players having equity. Um, that's how companies are built that are venture backed and and that's uh and that's the route that we took so a very fast forward version of it and we had our first season it was successful and kind of distributed on NBC and that was the touring model in 2019 and then boom we got hit with the pandemic with the first uh, team sports league in in North America to announce this bubble model and we did so um, not only in consultation with the other leagues who did it from the M NBA and the NHL but uh, with the White House task force that was put together around um, helping sports leagues figure out not only point of care testing, access to testing, but um, other scientific information that would help us build this this model and got through that. And, and now we're, uh, you know, feels like the same path of trying to predict what 2021 is going to look like. Um, and it's all been a blur, honestly, um, since going down that that path of what professional lacrosse could be. Back for more with Paul Rabel in a minute. First, a word from our sponsor, DraftKings. Week six is now in the books. Time to review the tape. Get ready for week seven. No better place to do that than DraftKings Sportsbook. It's giving all new users the chance to earn a sign-up bonus of $1,000. All you have to do is sign up using the promo code ROSS, all caps, R-O-S-S. Endless ways to bet. It's safe. It's reliable. It's secure. It makes it easy for you to deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. You can bet on, obviously, all the games in Week 7, but also UFC 254, and take any action on any baseball championship game. All there for you. So download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app. Use promo code ROSS, R-O-S-S, when you sign up, get $1,000. That's code ROSS to get a sign-up bonus up to $1,000 for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. Bonus comprised of a first deposit bonus. First bet match, each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or an Indiana 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Back to my conversation with Paul Rabel. I want to get back to the pandemic because obviously a lot of lessons learned. But the, the one thing you mentioned there that's interesting to me is you are you have for so long have been talent. And here you were, as you said, going to talent, the players, yeah. and trying to convince them. I mean, if this is too strong a way to say it, it's just it's poaching them from the other leagues. And how was that? How much pissing off did you do with your former employers? Uh, were you bidding? Did you start any bidding wars? I know we're not talking about millions of dollars. Yeah. But 
how did that even go? Were you doing it or did you hire people to do that? Uh, Mike, who I said is my my co-founder, he still, he still takes jabs at me and calls me talent uh, now, but it's a, it's, it's my, uh, it's an advantage for us as a company because we can see around the corner. I think that that other sports league owners um, potentially struggle with around understanding why athletes and entertainers, I think deservingly so, uh, perform better on a red carpet than they do in a more cost-efficient way, um, and you gotta constantly toggle between um, you know economics of business and and prosperity and and uh, that entertainment component that we had referenced. Um, so just to, to to provide some clarity, the NLL, the Indoor League, uh, still exists, yeah. and we share players with the Indoor League, and we're on opposite ends of of the uh, season schedule. They're a winter sport, we're summer. Uh, what we were competing with was Major League Lacrosse, which was the outdoor league that I had played in. And the Achilles heel, if you want to call it that, of of that league is that they were always signing us to one-year deals. And mm-hmm. it was part of, I think, the the toxic relationship that we had as athletes versus ownership. And why we never unionized as a group is that we were constantly being threatened by owners that, well... You know, if you guys lobby for increased wages or if you want, you know, better accommodations in transportation, then we just can't afford it and we'll fold. Yeah. And and that was just the conversation. It would just happen like this every year. And, um, you know, and I, I think as a way to, sh- to demonstrate that for them is they were saying we can only sign you to one year deals at, at, at a time. Um, and so that also like fit and match that narrative that they were sharing with us. So long way of saying you're not going to see a PLL emerge from the NBA or from the NFL or major league baseball at any point uh, where they're able to get all the best players in the world in one fell swoop because contract terms are staggered in those leagues. And there's guys with five-year deals and 10-year deals in baseball. And there's guys that go one-year deals as well. Um, so that was the opportunity for us. And, and as a result, we didn't have uh, really a, a bidding back and forth. It was like, Here's opportunity as it exists with MLL, and here's opportunity that could exist with PLL. And if you are interested, here's what we can provide, and here's a look at our schedule, and here's a look at our partners, and this is what we believe the future of lacrosse can be. Um, and then the players, from a nuanced standpoint, basically had to submit um, that um, ig- uh, kind of that that acknowledgement and uh, to our former league and MLL, and just recognize like, hey, want to let you know that we're going to play in PLL and thanks for your time. And, um, and that, that's how that process went. Um, you know, and now, now fast forward here, we're, um, we do, uh, we have a player relations team and we're back into, uh, the talent representation side of the business. I remember talking early on with one of our board members, David O'Connor and, uh, who worked under Michael Ovitz, who built CAA and David O'Connor built CAA sports and, uh, just building out that business unit related to our player relations team. Cause even though I, co-found this league and play in it and i have a player's perspective um you know what's always exists what's perennial in sports is is player versus league and so we have a i think a a really keen attention to detail around what's important our players have stock options in the league too so they're owners and what's best for the league is eventually best for them and what's best for them, the league will benefit from. I always say like what I, what I loved about the David Stern model of, of marketing players over teams um, when he was rescuing the, the brand image of the NBA is that he always had the long view of 
if Michael Jordan became a global star, the NBA was going to be really important because that's what people would tune into to watch this global star. And I think a lot of pro leagues have it wrong where they view their players' popularity as competition because they get caught up in the short-term dollars of call it a singular advertising budget at AB InBev. They'll allocate some to an athlete and the league can have a short-sighted view to say, ah, those are dollars that should have been spent with us. Or they could have the long-term view around, all right, let's create a, a larger pie of investment into both that player and the league. And if that investment into that player puts them on stage with, with Jimmy Fallon on a late night show, and that player is now bringing more eyeballs to our broadcast game during the playoffs, like this is a, this is a net win for not only uh, the player, but, but for the league. And, and that's, that's our view. Yeah, I mean, I, I've said for years, you know, once once people start realizing the players are the product, things move a lot faster. Instead mm-hmm. of thinking they're the brand or thinking someone else is the brand or thinking Nike's the brand, it's it's all about the players. And yep. I think you've recognized that. So your league is barnstorming and, and how many weekends and how many cities? Yeah. And uh, when you say barnstorming, how many players? Yeah, so we have about 200 or so players that are in our player pool um, and a little under 160 play every weekend. So we have seven teams um, and uh, we expanded to a seven team after our inaugural season, which started with six. And and you'll appreciate this on on the business of sports side. So we uh, went about deciding to build a touring model, which was essentially taking the, the, the business model of an individual sports league, call it NASCAR or the PGA Tour where you have all the best players in the world. Um, and I think NASCAR is a really good example because while you have a singular driver, they have teams. So you have all your teams descending on one racetrack, which is uh, exciting for, for a sport like ours with a, a smaller population size of, of fans and players. So you create more product demand if you're only in one market once a year um, versus trying to say, hey, uh, we have a hopefully an audience size of basketball and we think we can sustain playing eight home and eight away games. That's not a sustainable model. Like we, I looked as much as I I said, I'm partial to lacrosse. I looked at the existing model in MLL and it wasn't working from an attendance standpoint, but the college final four does. So how do we create something that works and, and still keep the competitiveness of teams going head to head for a regular season taking an all-star break and then vying for end of season records for playoff positioning and ultimately a championship. So we basically do a plot of final four weekends over the course of uh, 14 weekends in our inaugural season. Now, granted the COVID model was a lot different. So I'll just reference our first season. Um, And what you have is all teams in that market. We play three games. The business side of it is if you're a pro sports league that doesn't own the venue, which call it all non-legacy sports leagues, right? We don't have Robert Kraft that owns the venue that can optimize for the home and away schedule. What you end up doing is negotiating with your landlord and then you finally get your plot of games and then you go to the other teams in the league and you say, does this fit? It usually doesn't. Then you go back and negotiate and it takes forever. I mean, it takes a long time for the MLS to get their schedule and they own their venues. Uh, So then what happens in that process is when you iron out your schedule, you go to your network partner and you go, okay, here are our game times. Do they slot into your programming windows? And they don't. And and they don't. But if you're the NBA, the networks will figure it out. But for us, we're like, we're not the NBA and we're not the MLS, certainly in year one. 
So let's go to the networks first, because what's most important is we get programming windows on broadcast and on cable. And they go, great, we're in a partnership with you. Here are our windows. And we go, we'll take all of them. And they go, how do you know you can do that? Well, because in our tour-based model, you know, we'll go to Gillette Stadium for the weekend and we'll just schedule our game times because we took out the venue for the weekend. We'll schedule our game times around availability. So there was this reverse engineering of what's important in sports. It's viewership, it's broadcast distribution at the top because sponsorships follow broadcast distribution and media. And then we'll build our schedule from there. We could always flip in the future as we continue to, to grow our audience and uh, be able to like dictate terms um, around when we want to play. But on the inception, it just was like, all right, let's let's build this business around what's best for the business, not not what others have done before us. That's fascinating. And I always said broadcast is the lifeblood of sports and you're proving that. How hard was it to make that pitch to NBC? It was interesting. I think timing has a lot to do with all investments, whether it was, you know, Joe Tai, who's a lead investor for us and, and the Rain Group as well. Um, you know, I, th I think if we went to them with the same concept uh, five years ago versus in 2017, uh, they would have said no. And five years later, probably would have been too late. Mm. Um, so we're at the precipice. And I think COVID has been an accelerant. If you look at it from a, a glass half full in sports and, and broadcast has been accelerant to what we're seeing now more of as live sports behind OTT or, or subscription video on demand. And you're even seeing virtual MVPDs, which are the virtual cable providers like YouTube TV and Hulu. Um, see continued subscriber growth, and um, you're seeing you know fewer subscribers on cable. So, uh, what the networks were looking at advantageous for us, and we we sat with all of them. They were all interested, hmm. um, which was kind of concerning for me. Is like, why didn't MLL have this type of traction? Right. Um, you know, but but we uh, they were all interested, and I think it was like, okay, they're in the game of NFL rights, and then you know Warner has a big deal with the NBA. The RSNs make their kind of business from Major League Baseball. MLS is starting to gain traction. They average about 200 to 250,000 viewers during a regular season game on cable and they're a summer sport. So beyond that, it's like we're seeing a world where advertising dollars and that's in the way of CPM are only growing for live content. The rest of the world is going on demand um, and and the end viewer has more leverage than she or he ever has when it comes to television. It used to always be live, and the advertisers had the leverage. Now the viewer has the leverage, except with live sports. So they had to listen to us. If I put myself in in their chair, it's like, well, we've got an emerging sport that we know has has been popular over the last ten years at the youth level and international level. These guys seem to have a decent model. Um, we need more live content, so let's let's hear them out. And, and that and that's how we entered the room. Um, and then I think they really liked the tour-based model because it, it enabled us to put half the games on broadcast, which could expose us to net new fans, and then half the games on OTT, which I think we have a really strong customer acquisition team. Um, and our year-over-year -year growth for, um, for our OTT product on NBC Sports Gold went up 133%, even with a third of the games available exclusively there because of the pandemic. Hmm. And speaking of the pandemic, segue. Yeah. Yeah. You, like a lot of these sports, played through. And uh, I mean, I think you were out there. You were out front. I mean, we're seeing, yeah. we have data now, right? We have bubbles work, non-bubbles. You have, you have issues. How are you going to do it? Football's challenges, baseball's challenges, but they seem to be making it through so far. Uh, talk about your experience. Yeah, we, we felt, um, 
like we were ahead of the curve because in year one, we were already operating a tour-based model. So you could right. call it a single site model. Um, so we had an operations team in place and knew how to host, in this case, all seven teams on one site for an extended weekend. So we knew from an ops standpoint, if we wanted to pull off the bubble, we you know put a multiplier on it of, of five. So we wanted, instead of one weekend, we, we, we wanted four weeks. And, uh, and we knew we could do that. So then it all became about understanding the macro environment from a health and safety standpoint. We contracted in and we built a board uh, that we called a COVID-19 medical committee of infectious disease specialists and internal medicine doctors. And they were at the forefront of understanding with our relationship to other leagues and conversations with the White House of not only the, the trend from the CDC and World Health Organization of how to track this um, disease on a geography and a national footprint basis, but I think the really important piece on when leagues were going to run this model was around point of care testing availability. And if you remember back in April, like no one had access to testing. So if you had exposure, you were just quarantining. Right. And then what we found out was like by June, point of care testing was going to be available because what we didn't want to do is launch this model, buy a bunch of tests that, you know, because of our standards we put with our players in the quarantine would all come back negative, which thankfully they all did. We did over a thousand tests that were negative. So the model worked. But take those tests away from people in the country, citizens of the U.S. who are symptomatic. Right. So that clearance and that approval said, all right, here's the process we're now going to build. And once we had that ironed out, um, it became about marketing, which was how we started this call, Andrew. And, and, um, and for us, like knowing that we're constantly in a fight for attention um, with the legacy leagues that get it by just, you know, reposting a LeBron James photo from his Instagram account, you know, you get millions of views by reposting that. Um, like we don't have that luxury, right. uh, but we did know if, if, if we had our, our ducks in a row and we were first to announce that we could probably carry uh, some major kind of mainstream uh, news networks. And that's what we did. And we were able to lock in the Today Show for our announcement, Yeah, um, which was disproportionately large for a league like ours because we were the first to provide uh, a case study as to how sports could get back. And I, th I mean, we've seen the ratings down for most sports and you guys are up. I mean, is that same things you're talking about being proactive, being first to the gate on that. And, and of course your, your testing and treatments and protocols. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we were up, uh, other leagues were up like the WNBA that, that, that played during the com competitive mayhem of, of the NHL, NBA, um, even NFL and MLS. Um, so you have to look at it objectively, right? Like we're a, we're a startup league, just like a startup business. You want to see strong year over year growth um, because you're starting from scratch. Um, so that's certainly a part of it. I do think getting out early um, and that was the the final week of July before all the weeks started the first week of August yeah, uh, gave us unique exposure. Um, and then I actually viewed the other leagues coming back was advantageous for us to continue that upward trajectory because it wasn't just about, I actually feared being the only one on television because at that stage in the game, three months post shelter at home, people had lost their training of programming and appointment watching right. television. So lacrosse certainly wasn't going to get them back. So I actually viewed hockey and basketball back as like, reprogramming the sports fan to get back on their couch at seven o'clock on a Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at night. Um, and that, and that was helpful for us. So I think it was a combination of both. Um, and then, you know, we do a really good job of, 
of driving promotional awareness through our social accounts and our players as, as stock option holders in the league. Uh, part of our aspect to them is they promote tune and they do it on their stories and we provide them with those assets. But I think that's, that's what a lot of leagues try to figure out is, is how do we get our athletes to not just promote themselves on social, but promote their teams and the league. And uh, knowing for us, it's like kind of simple math. If a, if a lacrosse, player wants to become more popular and then as a result of becoming more popular which means more uh subscribers a larger audience they're going to get endorsement dollars which is going to supplement their salary um then they should probably perform well on field but don't perform well on field when no one's watching you got to perform well on field when people are watching so if we are all kind of rising tide and all of our boats are lifting together and we're promoting this game time, we're going to see increased viewership and you're going to see a growth in followers on your social. So that's been the comms and our players have, have bought into it and uh, we've seen a lot of positive results. Yeah, and speaking of comms and positives, we're, we're releasing this on uh, PLL Day. Yeah. <laughs> as, yeah. A, as, a, uh, as a nod to you, so tell us about what's what's yeah. Yeah, I mean, what what pro sports league like celebrates the anniversary of their launch? And they don't. Uh, for me, it was like it was like a kind of peculiar thing that uh, our director of marketing presented me after our first season. Um, but I, I think what what's unique about our league is that um, beyond just the product on field, the way we market ourselves and the way that we talk about lacrosse is we're also really transparent as an as an organization. And we, it's, I think it's advantageous to call it like. In addition to the the value of of live programming and television, we're also in the Shark Tank era still, of romanticizing entrepreneurship, and this is a large case of entrepreneurship. So yeah. we're very transparent around how we built the league, how we continue to build the league. We take fan feedback around uh, literally what the seventh expansion team's name should be, um, and we just view that as like you know building a very tight and sticky relationship with your audience which turns into engagement, which is what brands are spending on, less impressions. They want to see interactions, which is your likes and comments mm -hmm. on an average basis of your audience size. So that's uh, that's how we think about it. And then with PLL Day, it's like, hey, it's it's not just the, the entrepreneurs, it's not just the players, it's the fans that make this work. So let's celebrate uh, the launch of the Premier Lacrosse League, which happened... Um, on, on Bloomberg uh, on October 22nd. And we were all nervous and unsure how it was gonna be received. And I don't know if we'll always celebrate an anniversary. My hunch is not if we turn into a legacy league at some point, um, you know, we'll have franchises that celebrate their own anniversaries, but but right now we're still close to the to the starting line. Yeah, that's great. So what's ahead? We No one in listening or talking knows what's ahead actually. <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, is your plan to play through another quote unquote pandemic like season in the same ways, not knowing about vaccines or what's on the horizon or where we're going and, uh, and you know, trying to stay away from all the politicization of this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we have to build scenarios out for all potential Everybody. outcomes. Yeah. yeah. And then that's all I didn't mention. that. That's also why I think we were we were out of the gates first. Um, potentially as, as evidence of this being a successful model is that uh, on literally on March 12th, Mike and I jumped into a Google doc and we started punching out 12 scenarios at the time. This was before Gavin Newsom. We're based in LA. This was before Gavin Newsom declared shelter at home in California. 
Uh, so we had looked at a starting point of June 1st of 2020, and we already had our schedule announced as a go. So we were basically building out, okay, if shelter at home lasts in the middle of April, what happens if it lasts in the middle of May? How does that affect training camp? Can we push the start of our season back? Can we fill bye weekends in? And like those were the first 11 scenarios. And the 12th one was like, well, what if fans can't attend games? And, and what if like we're in a global pandemic through the summer? Um, is there a way where barring canceling this thing altogether, what would it look like? Um, and we built out that scenario. And then like three weeks later, it became pretty clear that that was likely the one that we needed to focus on. So we still have that version. It's, it's, I think it's a more elaborate kind of bubble model or multi-bubble model that we've planned and presented to our board. Should a second wave occur? Should you know, us not figure out a vaccine and, um, you know, states start, you know, deregulating and pulling back on on group gatherings. But we also have, have built and are continuing to pursue the tour-based model. Um, should there be a vaccine? Should there be herd immunity? And, and should, um, you know, we advance to a place, and not necessarily at full capacity venues, but we get to a place where some states are 35% capacity, 15%, maybe up to 50%. So you have to move forward with multiple scenarios. The snag right now for all sports leagues is communicating with your essentially your your uh, commercial investors, which are your brand partners, mm -hmm. and they're trying to figure out their businesses and their 2021 budgets and where they're going to spend. A lot of brands are figuring out Super Bowl right now, whether they're going to be on site with these elaborate builds or it's going to be some version of virtual marketing. So um, we have to be patient. You have to continue to have conversations, and and that's largely how uh, running these kind of enter entertainment businesses go. Really appreciate this, Paul. You've been great. I, I'll leave you with a, you and I were talking before we came on about uh, Tim Ferriss. Yeah, I think we're both kind of uh, diehard listeners. I'll leave you with a couple Tim Ferriss questions. <laughs> sure. Uh, you talk so much about what you've learned, and you obviously have this great learning spirit. If you were gifting books, a book or more than one, if you want to say, to your friends, family, students. What book would that be, or what books? Hmm, that's a that's a great question. I uh, I would say my first thing is to understand who I'm I'm recommending a book to, um, and and I, I say that because um, there are young entrepreneurs who want to get into the business of sport, um, who want to get into entertainment, um, who have you know, unknown of what, of what they want to pursue. Um, and then there are, you know, colleagues that I work with and people in our organization outside the organization of sport that, you know, are domain expertise experts, but, uh, you know, struggle with maybe uh, their, their work-life balance. So yeah. I'll, I'll start with um, on the, on the advisor side, um, my favorite author, one of my favorite authors and public speakers been a mentor of mine is actually Scott Galloway. Yeah. And a book that I reference a lot is The Algebra of Happiness. Um, and he also wrote a book called The Four that if you're into technology, it, it's, he'll tell you it's dated now, but it's essentially about Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google, um, and how they, they're like on a fast track to erode society versus continue to help it build. Um, so I, I'd recommend Scott Galloway. And then on the psychology side, I love Ryan Holiday, yeah. and um, and Stillness is the Key is one of his recent books um, that uh, I think helps a lot of creative people in sports think about their their time and space to be creative. 
You mentioned the digital giants. I just saw on Netflix, The Social Dilemma. And yeah. uh, it's really about all these people that were with these companies talking about how it's built to manipulate us. Uh, and it just, it rang home. I mean, I, I try to stay off, uh, certainly in the mornings, uh, until I sort of need to do my Twitter check-in. Uh, but I know it's just, it's hard to get people to realize they're controlling you. <laughs> like, make yeah. it so you control them. Make it so it's your choice, not theirs, and, and avoid the slot machines. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. I, I think there's... Uh... There are more disciplines that are being enabled by these platforms, like yeah. shutting your notifications off, uh, putting timers on through your hardware device, whether it's an iPhone or an Android. Um, and then I, I think like continually cleansing who you're following, understanding, kind of taking self-inventory on, on what's stressful about the platform and, and limiting that. Um, but but yeah, it's, there's uh, there's good that comes for it from it. And, and there's certainly a lot of... Uh, kind of intra turmoil that, that exists. And, and that's the area that, that, that uh, social dilemma flagged the most. Last question straight from Ferris. I'm, I'm plagiarizing. <laughs> so, okay. If you had a billboard uh, mm. and you could put billboard out to 7 billion people mm. and you could put one phrase, word, sentence, what would that be? So, Andrew, I'm, I'm caught between, you know, the, the, the objective opportunity of having a billboard in front of 7 billion people and, and doing a call to action for watching the PLL. Um, <laughs> and then how, we'll and, then how we'll <laughs> and then how uh, Tim's guests often answer it philosophically. Yeah. Um, so I, I think something I'll just say something that I'm working on is asking more questions and understanding uh, why. And I think, um, so from a philosophical standpoint, uh, I would say that perhaps like, and this, I think dovetails into a, a word that has been also romanticized over the last several years. And I think misunderstood with its brother or sister word, which is sympathy is empathy. Um, so empathy for me is seek to understand rather than seek to be understood. And we're constantly in search uh, for, for, for people to understand our point of view because it's, it's important. And we're trying to communicate why we feel a certain way. And I think the source of a lot of conflict relationally and, and in business is two people coming from a genuine place of trying to get the other to understand their perspective. That it gets in the way of empathy. Um, so that would be the way that I define empathy and see it versus sympathy is like literally like offering support um, for the person in pain. Um, and then on the, on the commercial side, like check out the PLL. Our Instagram's at PLL and our Twitter's at Premier Lacrosse and our games are on NBC this summer. Yeah, that'll wrap us up because I was going to ask you all, all your socials and all yeah. your... Well, Paul, this has been great. I always enjoy talking to you. I always admire your entrepreneurial spirit. You're kind of more than an athlete uh, way of doing business since way back, since I met you through Octagon five years ago. Yeah. Uh, and happy PLL Day. And uh, we'll say that to all our listeners as well, right? Thank you. Yeah, happy PLL Day. And if you haven't watched the PLL, like, like I said before, we, we really invite you to do that. I, I think... Uh, Part of why we are growing year over year is that we're also broadcasting the game differently. So it wasn't just, hey, find a network that can uh, distribute the product on field. I mean, we have 
10 to 15 cameras on site, um, which competes with a lot of NFL games, to be honest. And, and lacrosse, I think a lot like hockey in the 90s can be difficult to watch if you don't know the game. So uh, we made sure we you know, lowered our game cam, that we had these slasher cams, we have point of view cams, we have all our players mic'd up and we're really showing a, a fun broadcast. Um, so I encourage you all to watch it. And, and then maybe this time next year, um, you'll, you'll know if you didn't what uh, PLL Day stands for. But yeah. thanks for having me, man. Really hope you enjoyed that. What an entrepreneur, what an athlete, uh, more than a lacrosse player, more than any kind of athlete. He's an entrepreneur along with being a talent. And I'll do it for this week's edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Thanks for those who follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt, who subscribe to my Patreon at Andrew Brandt, giving you more content, more access to me. Thanks to my producer, Brian Neal, and my musical producer, Sam Brandt. And again, any comments or uh, ratings on Apple Podcasts is truly appreciated. And I'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. You promise your child they can be anything they choose. They promise to follow their dreams. Our promise is to help you save for college today and every day worry-free. YouPromise.com lets you save extra money for college by doing the everyday things you already do. Link any college savings plan with a free YouPromise account and watch your child's dreams become their future. Sign up today at YouPromise.com for a $30 welcome bonus. Start now at youpromise.com. Cox can help make your home smarter and your life easier. Now you can use your Contour voice remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox voice remote and watch them while you're in the house. And if you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Just say, show me driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com slash thisishome today.